Hi, welcome to the Creative Review Podcast. I'm Eliza Williams, and for this week's podcast, I'm in New York, where I'm meeting with Stefan Sagmeister at Sagmeister and Walsh's studios. I'm here to talk with him about his new book, Beauty. Welcome to the show, Stefan. Hello, Eliza. Thanks for doing this. Uh, just to set the scene, your new book, I would say, is a, a culmination of a project you've been working on for quite a long time now, which looks at the subject of beauty, particularly in terms of design and the way that uh, maybe it's gone slightly out of fashion in design mm-hmm. and that has been a little bit maligned compared to other sp- things that are seen a bit more urgently. Um, but maybe just to set the scene, can you talk about what sort of initially sparks you to take on this idea? Well, you know, I'm myself, I'm now a 55-year-old designer who, of course, was educated, grew up in, uh, in the 80s mm-hmm. in, uh, in Austria and as well in the US, where our faculty really talked about function. And uh, I myself went along those lines very, for a long time, the concept was everything, everything else, the form, the style was kind of like, at best subservient to that concept. And uh, it all had to do something. And the more we worked in the studio, and also I think with Jessica joining, it became clear to us that whenever we took form very seriously, when we put a lot of love and attention into the formal expression of the piece, it seemed to work much better. Uh And that started me to do a little bit of research here and there, and I found that other people found the same thing, specifically people who who invented modernism. Like, you know, let's say that I came across an interview with Max Bill from the 1950s where he said, it's not going to work with function alone. We'll have to put beauty in there on the same level as function in order to produce good work. Mm -hmm. And Max Bill had sort of in between the lines had this suspicion that designers loved function and loved, you know, sort of like solving problems that much because it was so easy. Because ultimately, to create a functional chair, a chair that you can sit on reasonably well, Mm -hmm. if it doesn't have to be beautiful or formally excellent, it's an easy thing to do. I mean, we can do 20 before lunch. If if all they need to do is, well, you can sit on it reasonably well. But to make a chair, to design a chair that has that function and at the same time also is beautiful in a way that is makes sense in 2018 is incredibly difficult because then suddenly you have the entire history of the chair weighing on you. You should do something newish, but something that makes sense now. I mean, and of course, we're not talking about, you know, just stealing from the past, like doing something for now. So we found then we found that many other modernists shared that opinion. Jan Chichol thought that his seminal work, you know, the Neue Typographie from 1928 was much too restrictive. He even called it fascist, his own work. Wow, okay. This is the book that 
basically every interface online is molded on. You know, I mean, if you look at Facebook, Jan Chichold. If you look at Airbnb, Jan Chichold. I mean, this is all still coming from there. And he discovered this in the 50s, but it was too late by then. And basically the entire train has specifically, I would say, in the second part of the second of the of the 20th century, meant has gone into the direction of function. Why do you think that is? Do you have any theories? Let me see if I can sort of like sum it up because I have there is many reasons for you know, big movements always have more than one reason. But I'd say on the more important side, I think part of it is the the original avant-garde let's say, in architecture, mm-hmm. uh, really was tired of this classicism of the 19th century. You know, people just stole willy-nilly. Let's do fake Baroque today and uh, fake uh, Renaissance tomorrow and fake, uh, fake Greek the day after tomorrow. You see it in Vienna, you see it in Paris, all these 19th century buildings basically yeah. doing whatever they just liked from the past copying whatever they like from the past. And there and people like Adolf Loos in Vienna, who was then a big influence on Corbusier in, in France and the Bauhaus in Germany, thought that this has to stop, that mm. this his time warrants its own visual language. Uh, and uh, he wrote this big thing, Ornament in Crime, where he sort of like made a big point against ornament and for, you know, simpler form. Yes. And uh, a lot of this stuff made a lot of sense when he wrote it in 1910 mm. and completely like more power to these people because it needed a lot of power to make these big points. Yes. Now part of this, so I think that was a part. So let's say specific and these people, you know, Corbusier, Mies, all these people took form still very seriously. If you look at the buildings that they built, they are very you know, intentionally, this form is intentional. Yes, and often very beautiful. Very, often very beautiful. I think it's yes. there's a sort of, when those ideas get watered down, maybe? It's or? the, we feel it's the second and maybe even the third generation of architects that came later, mm. who misunderstood some of the original ideas as this economic functionalism. You know, yeah. let's make it as cheap and as fast as possible. That really, you know, buried our world in this psychotic sameness. Yes. We still <laughs> suffer from to this very, very day. And, and presumably the war, so the Second World War, played its, a big part in that in terms of the need to rebuild fast. And so exactly, on. exactly. And even, and there is many, many little strange happenings. Like, you know, if you look at architecture in the 50s in Germany, all boxes, everywhere. Oh. And we had always thought, well, it's for sure that Probably the architects were left-wing, Hitler lost the war, so they got the power. Yeah. But not really. Like, you know, like Corbusier was an official city planner for the Vichy government, for the Nazi government in France. Okay. Mies worked worked for anybody. But I have a sketch that that we show in the show and we show in the book Mm -hmm. of Mies designing the German pavilion with swastika flags in place. He would have worked, he was not a Nazi, but he would have worked for anybody. Okay, and so then, it's not a political... Um, it's not really a political thing. It's a, or I think that the reason I'm mentioning it specifically in the US, modernism has this sort of like ring of 
goodness and clarity and moral superiorness to it, mm-hmm. which historically is not quite true in that sense. Like it's, there was a lot of malleability in there that led all the way to the dark sides where, you know, Bauhaus alumni Fritz Ertl built the barracks in, yeah. in Auschwitz, which, you know, you can't get more functional and more awful than yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, in any case, uh, I think what well, I think Jessica and I really believe that this happened in architecture, but it happened anywhere. You know, it happened in graphic design with the layout. Mm-hmm. You know, like things that Chichold designed in '28, Max built, still with a very big emphasis on form, was then became the basically the knee-jerk reaction of designers around the world of how to do something functioning. And it became a sort of emblem of seriousness, maybe, yes. or of, of kind of quality and strength or something. Yeah. Do you think that's because uh, the idea of something that has more form or more individuality c- could be seen as being a little bit... Frivolous. Frivolous. Exactly, yeah. And it's... Uh, I even would go as far that it's sort of like there's a maleness to it also. Mm. Yeah. That... Uh, that's quite emblematic of these times, you know, meaning all these designers, of course, were male. There is, and I think that the big point that we are making, and I think that's really, I feel it's an important point and I feel we can prove it, it's not just an opinion, is that these functional environments, no matter if they are architectural, if they are interface related, if if they are product related, make people behave and feel badly. Yeah. And an easy example would be the two, uh, the two train stations in New York, Penn Station, mm-hmm. crappy 1970s low ceiling architecture, yeah. Grand Central, high ceiling, grand like the name, a beautiful space. If you, after this interview, go and visit both of them, it's a 20-minute walk in between, mm-hmm. you will immediately feel, I can guarantee you, the difference in mood in those spaces. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. It's uh, One is has a pleasant hurriedness to it, where you feel you want to take off or you arrived. Mm-hmm. The other one is, get me out of here as fast as possible. And you'll... You'll see it in the mood, you'll see it in the behavior of people. Yeah. Uh, you can even scientifically measure it because there is the New England Complex System Institute who measures tweets, positive and negative, geographically. Yeah. And you see of the map always being <laughs> negative, more negative tweets coming out of Penn Stations, more positive tweets coming out of Grand yeah. Central. Yes. And the interesting part is that we feel that very much likely the same is true online. Let's say the most functional environment would be Twitter. Nowhere people behave more nastily towards each other than on Twitter. Yeah, that's very interesting. If yeah. you compare it to Instagram, less functional, more aesthetic, aesthetic plays a bigger role. Yeah. Uh, people behave much milder towards yeah. each other on Instagram than they do on Twitter. And I would say similarly of, of Facebook, it feel, somehow Instagram feels a much more appealing space to be in, maybe not so much the aggression, but the, the sense that you feel you can, you're doing something that's kind of calming perhaps more on Instagram. I mean, not, you know, there's issues with Instagram as there is with everything, but, uh, but it's, it doesn't feel such an intense experience yes. as say somewhere like Facebook, which is, you know, not a great design. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we definitely feel like this 
wherever function ruled solely, be it a 1950s public housing project that needed to be dynamited in the 70s because nobody wanted to live in it. Yeah. And people and it created a nasty environment and created an environment that was that ultimately turned out not to be livable for human beings. Yeah. We are convinced that if these architects at that time in the 50s would have had a goal of beauty in there, like Max Bill says, on the same level as function, these buildings would still be standing today mm -hmm. and funnily would function much better. Yeah. Like they would be functioning for what they need to do, house human being in, beings in a satisfying way. They would do they would fulfill that goal much better. Yeah. And uh, in the same way, we are convinced that interfaces, be it, I don't know, the interface for Facebook, yeah. that it would actually work much better, that people would spend more time on it, would enjoy their experience better if there would be a clear aesthetic imperative. Yeah. And these are big, I mean, if we are right, it's a big deal for, yeah. for graphics because right now, I'm we know hardly a design studio that talks to their client about beauty. Yes. It's just not done. It's like you would feel like an idiot doing it. You know, it would feel frivolous, as you said. Yeah. yeah. And yet there are so many examples of, I mean, one that immediately springs to mind being based in London is, um, is the underground map, which is always mm -hmm. sort of heralded as a, a great example of, of graphic design but of, of function too, sure. so sort of both beauty and yeah. function. And you see that in other kind of wayfinding systems yeah. around the world, but some are extremely difficult and then have the Penn Station effect where yeah. you feel confused and stressed yeah. and well, others make you feel like you have some control even when you, when you don't. So it's interesting to me that it isn't part of those sort of, it isn't seen as a practical element, I suppose. It's, but well, do you find that people do, just don't see it that way? I'll give you a good example in that world. Uh, let's say, uh, also coming purely out of modernism, would be another Viennese guy, Otto Neurath, who basically invented the symbol. Like, yeah. you know, the, 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 icon, the, the, the language, the international language of iconography. Okay. And uh, so, super successful, adapted on toilets everywhere in the world, but also adapted, let's say, on airline exit cards oh. everywhere in the world. And uh, the problem with airline exit cards is that they only function in the meeting where they are checked out. Like, I'm on planes all the time. Yeah. I almost never see a person take that card out of the pocket and look at it. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was Virgin Atlantic who first had the idea to put it on the little screen that is there anyway and make a musical about it. Now, I, last I checked on YouTube, I think that thing had 16, 16 million views on YouTube. And sparked by, its own sort of genre, actually, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, by people who are not even on planes and has now been, because other airlines actually got it because somebody did it, yeah. sparked now almost every airline or many of them do sort of like some more successful than others, yeah. cheeky or beautifully produced uh, security videos. Yeah. Uh, and that clearly work much better because people are actually looking, looking at them than the card that nobody looks at. Yeah. Like the card that nobody looks at, the function of it is zero. Yeah. It, that's as, as easy as it is. And we feel that many, 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 many pieces in that world 
And that goes from things that, that were designed for function only, that go all the way to very to books we designed. Yeah. You know, that we designed because it was ever the subject was architecture and we thought, oh, we better make a modernist, very clear, like, you know, three columns. So you got affected by it. Oh, short, yeah. uh, uh, layout. And the result was that nobody wanted to read it because the text already said, I'm going to bore the shit out of you. Yeah. Uh, I'm not like, uh, and it goes, it's everywhere. Like yeah. I recently did a review, a brand review for an airline and I looked at their magazine and it was whatever, the, 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 the page where the CEO says hello to the viewer. And it was a little CEO photo and it was a three column sans-serif layout and the layout already said do not read me, but I could also, I made a little bet I was paid for this brand review and I said, I'll bet you my entire salary that there's not going to be a single piece of information in this one page article that is if that's the reader or that's the traveler on your airline needs to know. Yeah. And then we read it together and I was right. It's like, it's this, it, it can become quite pronounced deep in the corporate world where things are done for their own sake, but they're not done anymore to actually talk mm. or communicate with the customer. And how, so in that instance, yeah. or in others, how do people react when you propose something different? It's, uh, if, I, if, I, if I go with a little bit of a commonplace, I would say in the world of graphics, pretty well. In the world of architecture, specifically because we are, I'm not an architect, so we are on top of it outsiders. I would say if the, I've definitely talked in front of purely architecture audiences. If the architects are 45 and younger, standing ovation. If the architects are 65 and older, I see silence. Right. Yeah. Because they're entrenched in that yes. way of thinking. Yeah. 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 Yes. Well, that gives hope, yeah. right? <laughs> and I have to say, like, I literally, literally today in the morning had a conference call with an architect that we might do something with, who is not 65, but in that neighborhood, and who built many, many things mm. that we would fight with our show. And he actually saw the show and he said it made him completely like it made him rethink things which is amazing that you yeah. can do this in an exhibition so just to explain actually the exhibition is connected to the book yes and is currently on in vienna is that yeah. right yeah. Um, just opened last week in vienna but there is a uh, you know there is a for those who can't see the exhibition we did publish a book with it uh, yeah. simultaneously with Python. it's uh, it's actually it's much it's quite a bit allows us to go more into detail, mm. allows us to be more precise in the arguments than you are in exhibition. Yeah. And, uh, but ultimately the, the, the trajectory is the same. Yeah. yeah. And what, one of, in the book, one of the things I found interesting was that you, you took quite a scientific approach, which you've sort of referred to a bit already, but you actively kind of presented mainly via Instagram, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and was it Twitter too, or was it? Mostly maybe? Instagram. Uh, you presented sort of your following with uh, options to kind of 
to do a bit of, I guess, of your own scientific research to whether there's, I don't know, an innate response to certain pieces of design where people will recognise that beauty mm-hmm. actually has a value. And, and from what I could gather from the book, it was very clear that there are certain types of design that people will respond well to. And this goes, I mean, what I found really fun and interesting with it was that you you weren't choosing pieces of design which were, um, I don't know, in a, sort of things that just designers would love. You were choosing things like washing powder yeah. design, obviously logos too, but a wide variety. Yeah. And, and so from that, would you sort of conclude that actually there, you know, there is a sort of, because people will often say it's the eye of the beholder and so on. But would you say there's a sort of universality that people yeah. recognize? Yeah. I mean, in Bihad, uh, we worked closely with a scientific advisor, okay. uh, Dr. Helmut Leder, uh, who runs one of the biggest labs for aesthetics in psychology. And his rule of thumb was always roughly half of what we think is beautiful is shared worldwide throughout culture, and the other half is individual. Okay. But half is a lot. I mean, yeah. it's a lot. And so this, and I think in the book, we make a very big point that this saying, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, is half wrong. <laughs> it's also half right, but it's half wrong. And uh, it also would be terrible if it would be completely right, because then why make something beautiful if everybody thinks yeah, something you, different? Yeah, there's something about individuality. Really yeah. yeah, and I think it was that, that idea was also helping the demise of beauty throughout the 20th century because if it's all individualistic it can't it's not worthy of our goal yeah. and but we try to prove in the book and i think we do it successfully that this is just not the case and when we uh our i would not really call our own research scientific mm. even though we had large numbers of people yeah you were approaching participating. it but it's our instagram following it's a little skewed and all that the the reason that we are we are quite satisfied that it goes in the right direction is because on some of these subjects there's other people already made this the same research and it correlates completely with ours. Right. So like, let's say when it comes to colors or forms, other people also did that research and we come to the exact same conclusions. Basically, and you know, a simple, I, sim, like simple things, when it comes to colors, blue is the favorite color of the world. Right. It is. And brown is the least favorite color of the world. Yeah. And when it comes to form, the circle is the favorite, the favorite, the favorite form, and the rectangle is the least favorite form. So we yeah. have this, you know, nicely. We can put up these nice little things: a brown rectangle, and says this is the ugliest piece of shit available. Yeah. And uh, there is some explaining to do for the building industry that puts brown rectangles. It's a lot of brown, everywhere. isn't it? There's a lot of brown rectangles <laughs> in there. Yes. Yes. So uh, there is, you know. There is that, but we can also show it an interesting thing that we do in the book is we show an actual Mondrian composition mm. and we show a fake Mondrian next to it where we just move the, the, the lines around. So actually a, a scientist who became a friend, uh, Chris McManus in the UK, mm. uh, came up with that test. And we asked the reader which is the real one, which is the fake one. Most readers, we know roughly 90%, will recognize the real one. And they right. will do that anywhere in the world. No matter if they sit in Japan or in, in Cape Town, in Helsinki 
or in Zurich. They yeah. will they will recognize the real one because and it's not because of the golden means. It's basically because Mondrian worked very hard to achieve this correct composition. Yeah. This and we recognize this. And I you know I've done it in talks. I've done a talk in Mexico City with a thousand people and everybody recognized the real one. Yeah. No, there was not a single person who uh, who had their hand up on the fake one. So it's uh, fascinating, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. There is definitely there is an agreement, and then there the other part, the other half is individualistic, and that's very much how much do we know? Like because ultimately, we we do think, we do find beautiful the things that we know well. I think it comes from evolution. Uh, you know, if it hasn't eaten us yet, it can't be that bad. Yeah. And then, of course, what context we see in and how we feel when we see it. If we feel very secure, we want a big portion of newness to the stuff that we know. And if we feel insecure, that portion becomes very little. And of course, if we know a lot, our, uh, let's say, our levels change. So. For example, somebody who is an art expert would find something else would would have a higher bar for what they think would be kitsch yeah. than somebody who's almost seen nothing. Yeah. You know, so that, of course there's this individualistic thing, but both very much likely would still have a lot of sharedness of what they find beautiful. They they still might both they still might both vote for the circle as their favorite form, or they still might both think uh, uh, agree on the color or on some compositional elements. Yes. Yeah. And from what you were just saying then, there was something else that stood out in the, the book for me, which was around this idea that. I mean, there's a quote I have here, which is, uh, it became clear very quickly that when business was suffering, only safe work would be accepted. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you sort of refer to that then, that there's a sense when times are difficult, that people kind of gravitate more towards the familiar. And, uh, and it's sort of obvious why that is. But does that then make it even harder when you're trying to get clients to embrace? Absolutely. Newness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's... Uh, it's like for me, this research was sort of almost comforting because, for one thing, you know, you always find research strong when it uh, when it uh, supports you when it supports <laughs> when it supports your own experiences. Yeah. Uh, and but also from the other way around, it made it much it made things much clearer on why when the record industry collapsed nobody did any good album covers. Yeah. Because everybody was scared shitless yeah. about their job. They didn't want to do anything new. Yeah. And uh, only when vinyl came back up in the last couple of years, longer in the UK, but in the last couple of years elsewhere, the quality rose again because it was different companies, smaller companies who were quite secure again. Musician one, they didn't have to sell a lot. It was fine if they sold a thousand pieces of vinyl or 500 yeah. and they and the quality rose up again out of that secureness. It's yeah. I think it's it's like, to me, it's just always fascinating that things that I often found to be individualistic and just happening to me, maybe, when you take a big step back and look at a bigger, look at a subject from a bigger point of view, it turns out that 
it happens to many people and there is a whole movement in that, a whole world yeah. reacting that way. You, become, you find your people actually yes, through it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yes, and it's interesting that too, I wonder with the sort of tech world, I mean there are obvious exceptions to this, Apple maybe being the most obvious one, but I wonder if some of the uniformity that you see coming through sort of new businesses or, and things like Facebook, and, but it, you see a lot, I feel there's a certain kind of look of all logos for, for tech-based companies that there's a, I wonder if that's the sort of thing of don't fear us too much because uh, we, you know, we, you recognise our feel, I mean, I don't know, with, no, if it looked radically different, it would be harder, perhaps? It's, I think that the tech world, obviously, by definition, is either very much run by engineers or engineers play a very big obviously. role in the design anyway. Yeah. It's, uh, again, it's quite male. Yeah. And so... Function has a, you know, is basically ruling unquestioned. That yeah. would be true for their logos, but uh, probably in a more important sense, it would be very much true for interfaces. Mm. You know, if you look at things like, let's say, if you compare the interface of Airbnb, let's say a housing site or a hotel based site, uh, to uh, Etsy, a craft based, a craft store to Facebook, a park, a meeting store, a meeting place. Yeah. If you would have physical iterations of these three things, they would look significantly different from each other. But online, uh, or their interfaces are basically the same. All of them coming directly out of the Neue typography from Chico in 1928. Basically black sensor with type yeah. on a white background done in different degrees, composed in different degrees of sophistication. I mean, clearly Airbnb has a, is better designed yeah. than, let's say, Facebook would be, but it's the same, it's the same direction. Yeah. And uh, I think that my strong feeling is, is that even though this, these are mediums where you, that allow you to try out different things, aesthetic direction has not been tried out because it's so far removed of what is part of the conversation currently. Yeah. And yeah, if we can, if, if we are able through this book to bring that back into the conversation that somebody in these companies would at least give it a chance. At yeah. least when they have five different iterations of an interface, let's try an aesthetic one. And see how it works. I'm convinced it's winning. I'm absolutely convinced. Yeah. It's, uh, our scientific advisor actually even goes as far. He hasn't quite proven it yet, but he has a very, very strong gut feeling that beauty is used by the brain as a shortcut to make decisions fast. Yeah. Now, if he's right, if that is true, every packaging company in the world would have to have beauty as a goal. Because if you design that yogurt, you would want to be the most pretty yogurt if, because everybody in the supermarket will make a decision between this yogurt and that yogurt from 10. And very clearly, you want to make this decision fast. Yeah. So if Dr. Leder is right in that way, that would mean a complete change of goals, at least for packaging designers. Yeah. And right now, we know from many points of view by the, that, that, that it isn't happening. If, we, if I go onto the website of any packaging design company in the world and look at the about section, 
I might be wrong, but I would be super surprised if there would be one that has beauty as a goal in yeah. there. Yeah. But also I can do a shortcut to that and go to a supermarket and I think a reasonable person that goes to a US or UK supermarket does not feel that they are surrounded by a world of beauty. No. This is... <laughs> <laughs> It's just not the goal. Yeah. Meaning it's not like... Uh, the, and we found that if... Like beauty does not necessarily have to be more expensive. Very much... If we keep with the yogurt example for a second, mm -hmm. you can make that yogurt packaging much more beautiful without spending a cent more. This can be done in the same printing technique and the same packaging technique. But it's more difficult. Yeah. I think that is to keep the same function and of course for it to be designed it has to be functional like the, the functionality of it has to be kept but to make a yogurt that just functions meaning says you know whatever freshness mm. and yogurtiness and <laughs> maybe it has to have some sort of like healthiness on top of it uh, is much easier than to do all that and to also make a beautiful thing yeah it's just it's just more difficult and i think on top of it so many of us so many in our profession have not really been trained in that oh. way because it's been so disbarged for such a long time like you know it just wasn't a goal in schooling and it's a it's difficult and sometimes, I mean, there's definitely cases specifically when it comes to, uh, there's definitely cases when it also can become more expensive. I meaning, you know, uh, a Baroque church was not an easy, was not a no. cheap thing to do. Uh, and just the fact that you say that it's harder yeah. will perhaps make it more expensive just because it won't be everybody that can do it. So I think it, there's, there, like, I think there's that. Yes. But then there's also many examples where it's the opposite. So, for example, uh, even in the very beginning, and we have this in the book, like in the 1920s, we have an example of a, uh, of a fruit bowl, unbelievably ornamental, incredibly uh, elaborate, and, but it was done in, in, in France, and it was a cheap silver pressing thing, super okay. easy to do, versus a Viennese, very simple lines, handmade, hand-hammered, super difficult to do fruit bowl uh, that would have cost a multiple in yeah. production towards the elaborate one. Also, very often, specifically, if you want to do minimalism on a high end, very often it turns out that these super straight lines are actually very expensive yeah. to do because they are difficult to achieve yeah. and there is nothing there are no ornaments to hide the mistakes so uh, and on top of it when we in many iterations of architecture we feel that uh, if it's minimal architecture it works very well if it's kept in top tip top shape so there is a cost involved in that. Yeah. If you look even at the Bauhaus in Dessau, how it looked like when after East Germany had taken care of it, these are pieces of shit. I mean, yeah. in this, if you look at the photos of how the Bauhaus looked 
in the whatever when the wall came down i mean nobody wanted to move in there this was like awful yeah. now that they are resorts to their original grandness they're fantastic but and it's the same with brutalism mm. i think brutalism you see it here mr whitney looks fantastic when it's when it's kept pristine in its original form yeah. if people add crap if the, if the if the original form sort of gets lost it looks shitty very quickly while if you look, if you go through Rome and look at all that 19th century ornate stuff, this looks fantastic. Half, uh, half uh, in as a half ruin, as in bad shape, renovated to the hilt. Yeah. It there is much more leeway there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and then of course there's a cost involved in that. Yeah, uh, it's not just the initial build. So yeah. I would say that that. There is no question that beautiful functioning things are more difficult to do. It just is. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's definitely, it wants much more from the designers. And in that sense, I think it's actually the opposite of what many designers, I think, honestly feel. Like if I, you don't often see it in a place like creative review because you as journalists know better to even ask that question. Mm -hmm. But I see it quite often in the mainstream press where a mainstream press journalist interviews a designer and makes the quote mistake of asking so you're all about making things look good then yeah. and there's always a, a wave of protest no 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 we are not about that like you know we are about solving problems and you know all the, yeah, the rest of it of the exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah and i think this has just been is one of those things that has just been repeated i was one of the people who re who would repeat this yeah. problem solving thing because it sort of like sounded okay and i didn't quite questioning it but uh ultimately we really got to the conclusion that yes the problems need to be solved no doubt about it it's just it's just so much more difficult solving them beautifully and solving them uh, ultimately, I think from a viewer's point of view, solving them that they are delightful to the viewer, which would make them so much more functional. Yes, you so know, much more successful. Yes, and that's true for the public housing project. That's true for the the guide that shows you which where the emergency exit in the plane is, yeah. and that's true for the architecture book that if designed with some true love and care will find so much more so many more readers and it's true for you know places like you know done by and i think the reason why we are so comfortable and confident that this actually will also ultimately win out is because if you look at the true leaders in architecture Let's say our favorites. Let's say if we look at Europe, it would probably be our favorite of the famous firms would possibly be Herzog and Demeron. Mm -hmm. If you look at the Elbe Philharmonie, those window shapes, they're fully functional. You can see in and out, but that form follows no function. Yeah. That form is beautiful, meaning that form, the reason that form, that bulging windows was, were chosen was not because they became more functional, it was because they became more beautiful that way. Yeah. More, uh, and the same would be true for the Highline. The Highline could have probably been done 
much easier. You could have just put could all, just made a road along it or something. Plant some grass there yeah. and forget about the whole thing. And it would have been maybe somewhat successful, but nowhere closely mm. as a giant influencer as it became. I mean, there is 60 Highland projects, yeah. Highland-inspired projects, either in being built or completed already around the world. So you could say it's the single most influential building in the last decades that came out of Manhattan. And it's a renovation of a pure, it's a, I would say, it's a beautiful renovation of a, almost a logo for functionalism. I meaning a, a, a piece of train track that was made to build, to bring goods in and out of New York. Yeah. It doesn't become more functional than that. And now it's, it's been transformed in the ultimate non-functional building, a park made for strolling. You know, meaning very few people use the High Line as a means for getting from A to B. Many people walk it up and walk it down. So there is, the function is low, but the enjoyment is extremely high. The pleasure yeah. is high. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think ultimately people vote with their feet. I think I know, I'm good friends with the architects. They are the original projection of the city was 600,000 people a year. They have six million a year. So the factor of ten is pretty yeah. substantial, and there is no crime on it. You know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, very good. I feel we could talk on for ages about this, but I think you've made you've explained it extremely well, and and it's a compelling and interesting story, really. I think let's. I mean, I know in the book there's a, a manifesto you have, which hopefully will also be taken on by other designers, and you can read the book. It's published by Fiden now. And the exhibition's in Vienna, but also traveling, is that It right? will be traveling. It's, uh, for now, it's traveling. The next stop is Frankfurt, then Hamburg, then down to the Lake of Constance, then very much likely France. So we'll see. It's, uh, the message we, is spreading. Yes, <laughs> we, we already have a good number of, uh, of museums interested in it's a big It's a big show, but the, uh, the content of the, of the show is very, very much elaborated it's all in the book but also very much elaborated on uh, and uh, it was a pleasure to do it with Feiden because they also are very very neat on fact-checking they didn't allow me <laughs> <laughs> they didn't allow me to, to basically claim anything without not <laughs> having it exactly proven uh, in Plenty of footnotes. Yeah, no sweeping statements. Yes. <laughs> oh, very good. Well, I, I thoroughly recommend checking out the book now. It's called Beauty and it's published by Fiden. And you can also read more generally on the subject on the Creative Review website on creativereview.co.uk. Thanks. Thanks a lot.